Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kishanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu, la'asok b'divrei Torah, v'ha'arevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka b'finu ufi amka b'tisrael. V'niye anaknu v'zetzeinu v'zetzei amka b'tisrael, kulanu yodea shemeka v'lom de Torateka lishma. Baruch atah Adonai, hamlame Torah le'amo Yisrael. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. May it be soon in our days that we see the return of our King, Mashiach, Yeshua, the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, the Tekiyat HaMitim, resurrection of the dead. Amen. I'm just so looking forward to everything. And I want to say that this week is the final uh, episode of the Game Changer series. And I'm really looking forward to the BSU series. Uh, burn stuff up series and um probably need to work on that acronym <laughs> that's uh wow struggling anyway but we do need to basically be a a consuming uh group of people who are bringing forth the fiery light of torah to the confusion and the chaos and the darkness and the pandemonium that exists in the world today what am I talking about? I'm talking about the prophet Obadiah. This does have to do with Parsha Vayakel and Parsha Pekude and Shabbat HaKodesh, which is all taking place this week. So this is a get you some week to take us into the month of our freedom, which is the month of Nisan. Amen. So in Ovadia chapter one, because he only wrote one chapter uh, in verse 18, he says the house of Yaakov will be a fire and the house of Yosef a flame, while the house of Asav will be straw, they will set them on fire and consume them, so there will be no survivors of the house of Asav. For Adonai has spoken. Now the thing is, Ovadia gets the credit for these words, but the thing is, is who did he give credit to? He says, Hashem has spoken. That's important. Because according to Hashem, Asav is straw, hence why they have straw man arguments, and their whole house will be consumed and there will be no survivors left. Now that's interesting because if you follow the dots, Asav, grandson Amalek, on down the road, and habitation taking place in Mount, which is called Mount or called Edom, which eventually transfers to Rome. And that's the progenitor of Christianity. So when you really follow that all out, uh, there you have it. So where does straw man arguments exist today? Oh, the Sabbath is no longer on the seventh day of the week. It's now on the first day of the week because the Messiah was raised on the first day of the week. Well, where in that did God command us to change the Shabbat? Next, um, those poor Jews, they have to work for their salvation. Um, where is that? Because apparently we were saved out of Egypt without doing anything. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we got circumcised and we uh, did the, uh, the Pesach lamb. And we also began counting the months with the Rosh Hodesh. So... Obviously, there's a little bit of action going on. But I mean, really, Hashem said he was going to do this 
which was already told to us by Yosef back in Genesis. So before the book of Genesis ended, Yosef told us Hashem is going to bring you out of your exile. And when he does bring my bones with you. Crazy thing about that is salvation literally had nothing to do with us. Hashem was going to do it, whether we were there or not. So it really depended on who was ready to receive that salvation and walk in it. Well, first way to walk in salvation is to get on the right calendar. Second part of it is to start with the festival of your freedom. Hence why the whole understanding of Mashiach's crucifixion for us and his burial and his resurrection for us is important because that literally is Pesach into the festival of unleavened bread, which is the other name of the week for the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of Matzot. Because within Pesach, which is a seven day festival, you have three different holidays. It's a three and one. Because the 14th into the 15th, which is the day that the lamb is slaughtered when we have a temple. Can't do that today unless we get our temple back. But anyway, uh, so don't don't be eating lamb or goat on the night of Pesach when you have your Seder. That'd be a little weird. Because uh, it, it has to be if it, if you're trying to uphold that actual mitzvah, the mitzvah is to have it roasted. So. We avoid doing anything like that, but you can have like, you know, beef roast and things like that, but you don't do roasted lamb and all that kind of stuff. Cause that would insinuate, imply and infer that you went out and sacrificed a lamb or a goat, which obviously we're commanded that in Exodus chapter 12. But the thing is, he says it's an offering, which where do you find offerings? Oh yeah. At the temple. So just a little side note there to kind of avoid any kind of uh, hilul, desecrations. Uh, anyway, so you have your Seder. Okay, so that's all Pesach. So now that you're in the 15th of Nisan from your Seder forward, you're literally now in the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Now, the day after that is going to be the 16th of Nisan, which is the festival of first fruits. And this is where we begin to count the Omer. If you want to call the Omer count a holiday, which you technically could because that connects Pesach to Shavuot, now we're up to four because you're counting the Omer, celebrating first fruits, having the festival of unleavened bread, and you've celebrated Pesach with your Seder. So, and obviously, on the day before the Seder, before candle lighting, you have the removal of the hamets from the house and the burning of the hamets with your lulav. That's correct. If you have your lulav, which is the what was waved before Yeshua as he rode in on a donkey, where they said, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, Hatzlikana. Yep, we brought the latter festival to the, to the early, to the, the latter rain, to the former rain. All in the first month. That's literally what we do with our lulav. So we connect Sukkot to Pesach through the burning of our lulav with the chametz. So yeah, 
anyway, if you can safely do that, you'd be like super spiritual and stuff. But if you can't do that, no problem. Just remember that that literally is the way this is done. So it's not like you're going to get like, you know, well, you don't get a gold star today because you didn't burn your lulav with your hummets. But you remove your hummets and brukashim. That's the important part. No hummets found in your dwelling. What is hummets? Five grains. Got your rye, barley, oat, wheat, spelt. If that mixes with water and it's over 18 minutes, it's now considered hummets. Those grains by themselves, totally fine. Just be aware of moisture and condensation because you don't want hummets sneaking up on you. So anyway, all that to say that you're celebrating all these festivals and the fact of us having our understanding and connection with Mashiach from the festival of our freedom, which happened at the beginning of counting the months, getting us on the right calendar. It's like Hashem already sets us up for success because he's like, listen, you didn't know anything about all this, but because you came in through the death, burial and resurrection of Mashiach, which is the immersion process. The fact that you go into a mikveh is like crucifying yourself. Then you lower yourself into the waters of the mikveh. You're getting buried, but you don't stay there just like Mashiach's body didn't stay in the tomb. And then you rise up and that's the resurrection, which is the festival of first fruits. The festival of first fruits is all about the first sprouting from the earth. Like literally, it's the first grain that comes from the earth, which is literally barley. Okay, so then there's a whole uh, Mishnah tractate about that, and you should read it if you can about what literally is the festival of first fruits. It literally is a party where everybody goes out at night, and you know they go and do the whole ceremony of the of reaping in the omer, and they bring it back, and they do all sorts of stuff with it at the temple to take it through the sifting process, the thirteen different stages it goes through to refine it, you know, like the 13 ways of studying or the, the 13 principles of studying and interpreting the Torah. There's all of that kind of stuff in there. So, I mean, you're really looking at, you know, all the aspects of that when it comes to uh, the resurrection and the life and studying the word of God and renewal and all that kind of stuff. So, you have all of that literally in Pesach. So there's all that to really take into consideration if someone says that Jews work for their salvation. Next up, you know, one of the most common things is, uh, you know, oh, the law. The law is such a burden. It's so hard. I can't believe anybody would want to be under it. You know, well, if you think about it, what is the word of God? It consists of the law. So if you say you're no longer under the law, you're saying you're no longer under the word of God. That's a problem. So. Say law. And last thing I want to say on this so I can move on, uh, just examples of what I'm saying about this prophecy in Ovadia, Obadiah, chapter one, verse 18. Is that for those who say they don't accept Jewish ideology. They don't want the Jewish stuff, rabbinic interpretation. Well, first, you got a problem with believing in the Messiah, because the only way to know that there's a Messiah, why you should believe in him and who the Messiah is supposed to be to make sure you get the right candidate, because why? There are false messiahs. 
And JC is a false messiah because of the picture that has been painted of him. But we know his name is not really JC. It's really Yeshua. And, you know, you got to really get around all of that because he did not tell us to stop eating kosher. He did not tell us to move the festivals. He did not tell us to go to church, all that kind of stuff. So if you're under JC, you're going with a false mentality there. So but this person really existed and he still lives. Amen. Uh, and his name is Yeshua HaMashiach, literally from the house of David. So that's a thing. So anyway, when you get into all that and the fact that you even have a Bible. Well, guess who said you should have a Bible? The Jewish people, i.e. Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, you know, people with books in the Bible. And uh, Mordecai does have a book in the Bible. It's called the book of Esther. If you read the end of Esther, you'll see Mordecai really like, you know, doing some things. And if you've heard my Purim GC uh, podcast, then you'd know Mordecai was not some peon. He was a literal like get you some. So those people said that, you know what, we should take what's been orally handed down, you know, word of mouth, you know, prophet to prophet kind of stuff. Uh, that we should put that in written form, just like the Talmudim. They said, you know what? We need to write all these things down. Yochanan, he wrote the gospel. Matthew wrote wrote a gospel. Luke wrote one. Yochanan. You know, all that stuff wasn't written down at one point in time. So same thing with the, with the Bible, which is literally the Tanakh that people commonly call the Old Testament. Um you know, which is another problem, because if you call it the Old Testament, you're really saying that that was a different God. And so now we want to get rid of him and we want to worship a new God, you know, one who's not so wrathful, one who who's kind and all about love and peace. And, you know, he doesn't care if you sin. But yet. You say you have to live a holy life, you know, kind of stuff. But anyway. Key word on that is Marcion. Read the encyclopedia about Marcion, and that's where Old Testament, New Testament came from. So anyway, you should probably just know that Jewish stuff and rabbinic stuff is literally why we have a Bible, like literally any part of the Bible came from the Jews. And everybody in the Bible was a Jew. So... That's kind of interesting because many people think Paul was a Christian and it's like mm, his name is Shaul and he's actually a Jew. So is Peter, a.k.a. Kepha. So anyway, just things that need to be widely known. And uh, as we're anticipating the final redemption and really praying for it and yearning for it, that is a very, 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 very important, crucial thing that we need to. Get out there and consume stuff. Okay, there we go. The CS series. So get ready for that. Consume stuff. All right. And the Shabbat HaKodesh. What is the deal with that? Well, Shabbat HaKodesh is all about the Shabbat of the month. Literally is what it translates as. It says this precedes the first of the Hebrew month of Nisan. So the Shabbat before the Rosh Hodesh of the month of Nisan. So if you look at this word 
Hachodesh, it literally has the word Hadash, which literally means to renew. And the word Hadash, if you change the vowel points, is Chodesh, which is how you say month. So literally, as you're saying month, you're saying renewal. Interesting, because Hadash is where we get Brit Hadasha, like it's, a, it's in that phrase, which is the new the renewal of the covenant, commonly called the new covenant. Again, this is in the writings of Jeremiah. And many people think, oh, the new covenant started with Matthew or it started with the resurrection of Messiah and the beginning of the teachings of Paul, which have a very, very big span, by the way. By the time Yeshua was resurrected, Paul was still killing the people who associated themselves with Yeshua. So that's a problem. Anyway, uh, say la on all that. Uh, so now you got this idea of the month literally is something that's been here before. Because how many times has the month of Nisan come across in the calendar? It's like a cycle, right? How many month of Adars have we had? So we're looking at a cycle. We're spinning and we're going around and around. You know, we cycle through time, right? So literally, as we count the months, we're counting, okay, this is the next cycle of the month of Nisan. And in the Jewish mentality, as you continue to experience the rotation of time, it literally is like rolling the scroll to go through the Torah portions. It literally is like, okay, so we have been blessed to see another month of Nisan. What are we going to do with it? You're supposed to be developing and growing, and maturing, deepening your faith, um, you know, uh, improving your walk, if you will, with Hashem as you go through renewal. Just like we call the month, the new moon, a uh, Rosh Hodesh, renewal of the moon, that it's the same moon, but it's it's back again. It's it's going back through its phases. So with the new moon, when it's new, you can barely see it. And it goes all the way from barely seen to full and it wanes and goes back down again and it comes back. And every single time it goes back to the beginning, we call that a renewal. That's the beginning of a month. So these things are all connected. So as we cycle through time, we're supposed to be renewed, which is why the waters of a mikvah are so important, because those waters are always cycling so that there's always fresh water available like a river, you know, it just flows rivers of living water literally is a mikvah. This is the same thing that came out of the rock that traveled with us in the wilderness. This is the same thing that Yeshua says will come out of us when we place our trust in him. And when we attach ourselves to him, we'll be renewed. So, and if any man is in Mashiach, he's considered to be a new creation. Well, guess what? I don't know about you, we still have our same makeup going on here, but there's something different about us. So if you become new in, Mash in Mashiach, you don't become somebody else as far as like you get a different body and everything. I mean, you do get a different body, but I mean, you're still like people go, oh, hey, that's you. That's so-and-so. So at the resurrection is when you'll get the new body that you're sealed as a promissory note for through Mashiach. So 
again, just want to emphasize that new, as we think of it in English, is not really the definition that the Hebrew brings out. So we, we're repurposed, if you will. And so Shabbat HaChodesh, the Shabbat of renewal. There you go. Uh, and while we're on this, it says that on this Shabbat, we uh, look at Shemot, which is Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 20, and the laws of Pesach. So if you haven't been studying Pesach, um, this is your Shabbat opportunity to be launch you out in. This is also the week of opportunity. Go ahead and start learning something. Pick up your Haggadah, you know, pick up, you know, Exodus chapter 12. I mean, it'll really give you some good stuff. So. There's all that um, Rashi commentary, which, by the way, is available online for free. Like, get yourself on that Safari. Get yourself on that. It's all out there available for you to just click on and you can get all all sorts of commentary. Then it says on the first day of Nisan, God presented the first mitzvah of how to sanctify the new moon, which is called Kiddush HaKodesh. For the onset of Rosh Hodesh and thus Nisan becomes the first month of the Jewish year, counting by months. Because if you didn't know, there are lots of new years on the Jewish calendar. There's a new year for the years, a new year for the months, and a new year for the trees, and all sorts of stuff like that. There's four new years. So um, when you really look at this, what's going on, it's literally saying, so when we say that Nisan is the, is the first month of the new year, it's like, yeah, because we're counting the cycle of the months. So every time we get to Nisan, we have a new year of months. When we get to Tishrei, we have a new year of years. That's why the year changes in Tishrei. So there you go on all that. So um, before the current names of all the months on the Hebrew calendar, you know, like Nisan, Adar and um, Shavat and Tevet and going back into Kislev, going backwards from where we are now. Those are all Babylonian names or pagan names, if you will. Why? Because Hashem brought us out of paganism and brought us back into our land. Now, again, we got kicked out again. And now we have things like January, February, March, April, May, June, July. So now that we have to refer the calendar by that and connect it back to the Babylonian names and then connect it back to the months that they were originally given, you know, like the month of Aviv and whatnot. Well, that's because we keep getting ourselves in exile and we got to stop doing that. Beautiful thing is, is when Mashiach returns and he will maybe soon in our days, we won't have to go through this again because that'll be the final time. And because of the work that Mashiach has already began to do, he puts us in a position of when the redemption happens, there's no relapse, which is the whole part of the renewal of the covenant is that we forsake relapsing back into transgression that causes us to go into exile. He's like, this is a once and final fix. Like what, what failed in the garden and what failed at Mount Sinai because of the people, not because of Hashem. In Mashiach, it will not. This is why understanding what is the new creation we are in Mashiach is so important and why we need to take to heart 
you know, things like Romans 8, about how our mindset is on the things of the spirit, which is the word of God, and life, which is the word of God. So, which involves the law of God. And if we're truly walking in the law of God established in Mashiach, as is written in Romans chapter 3, then there you have it. But if you're just trying to walk through the house, which would be the proverbial being under the law, without the grace which comes through the Mashiach, you're like a house with no foundation. But if you put your house on a foundation, i.e. the rock, which is the grace, which is Mashiach, because one of the prophecies from the prophets is that we will shout to the rock, grace, grace. So the rock literally is grace, which is the foundation for the house, which is Moses, which is the Torah. So for those who don't know anything about building houses, the way a house stands is on a foundation. So if you don't have one of those, your house is going to have some issues. All right. So that's a little bit on Shabbat HaKodesh. And the, the Parsha this week is actually a double Parsha to conclude Shemot. The book of Shemot will literally be finishing the book of Shemot this week. And the two Torah portions that are connected if you link them together with their actual meaning, Vayakel Pekude, it literally means, and you shall assemble an accounting. You shall gather an accounting, you shall take stock. And the beautiful thing about that is we, you know, here at Lapide, we have the Chavengers, and the Chavengers assemble. And as Rabbi Griffin, Captain Israel, so beautifully brought down, and Aliyah 1 of this week's double Torah portion, that this assembly is not what we think of just a group of people gathering, but it literally is becoming unified as one. One heart, one mind, one body, one spirit, one amuna, one um, purpose, one mission. You know, and so um, there's a movie coming out soon, uh, I don't know. Uh, I really don't care when it comes out or if it comes out because I really want the redemption to come out, you know, so that's kind of my biasness. But anyway, should the redemption not come for some Shalom reason, uh, eventually they have a plan for the movie called The Eternals to be released. And The Eternals have this ability to unify together and they're called a unimind. And I immediately thought about Parsha Vayakel because I'm like, seriously? Because like, that's literally what Hashem said that we should do with Parsha Vayakel. It's like, I know all of y'all are special. I know everybody has different talents and giftings. I know y'all are from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But I need y'all to come together and make one entity. Now, if that sounds like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, then Mazal Tov, because that's literally what it is. One body of many members. And goodness, I'm going to try to find this in my notes. I've been taking screenshots of everything because there's this understanding in Judaism that there is a mystical body of the supernal Adam. He's called Adam El Yon, which is the image of Adam Harishon, the first Adam, but in the heavenlies. And that heavenly Adam is what came down 
into our physical world and became manifest. And so now why do we have to be gathered in the Messiah? Because we literally are bringing forth the manifestation of this mystical body in the physical. So here's what it says. The Midrash says that the sanctuary was made in the likeness of the human body. And Kabbalah, this mystical sanctuary is called the body of Adam Kadmon. Another way to say it, Adam Elion, the supernal, the, the, the heavenly godly Adam. Ancient of days, Adam, like the word Kedem. Okay, anyway, it says the primordial man created in the mind of God. You know, in Corinthians, Shaul also wrote, you know, we have the mind of God, which is obviously the Torah. And so, yeah, so there's a man there. So if we have the mind of God, we have the Mashiach, Yeshua, who is the Torah manifest, which is the mind of God. So it says before space and time, before words and speech, before darkness and light, each one of us is part of this mystical body. There are many members, but only one body. Now, it goes into saying this right here. It says, Yosef is the place of the covenant. Aaron and Moshe are the legs. Yitzhak and Abraham are the arms. Yisrael, i.e. Jacob, is the heart. Which, by the way, Lev is the word for heart. First letter of Torah is a bet. Last letter of Torah is a lamed. Put those two word letters together and flip them backwards. So it's lamed bet. And that's the word heart. So Jacob embodies the heart, which is the Torah, which is Israel, because Jacob is also called Israel. But the descendants of Jacob are also called Israel because we perpetuate the life of Jacob, who is called Israel. So literally the fact that we're calling ourselves Israel, like Jews, is saying that Jacob is still alive. Because it's as if Jacob is still living, moving and having his very being, because everything that Yaakov, Jacob, stands for is what we embody and manifest in the world. Which is bringing forth the Torah of God and bringing forth the light of God into the world. So there's that. And it says, guess what? Mashiach is the head. You may have read that in 1 Corinthians 11. Well, guess what? One of the other straw man things is we got to have the New Testament because if we don't, then how are we going to know about Messiah? Well, guess what? The Messiah taught about himself by using the Torah and the prophets and the writings. So there's that. And then also everything that's written in the New Testament, quote unquote, New Testament, I say, is written, composed, it happened during the era of what's called Tanaim or the Tanaic period, which was all about repeating teachings that were of previous times. So it's not that everything in there is not new. It's this is a repetition of what's already been taught and known by Jewish people. 
if Messiah stood up and said, and he did, you know, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Everybody already went straight to this Midrash in their mind. Are you saying that you're that human body in the mystical understanding that is the primordial man? You're the primordial man? The one who's created in the mind of God? Is that you? What? Something greater than the temple is here? Go right back to this Midrash. It's like, so wait. So Yosef is your covenant. Aharon and Moshe are your arms. Yitzhak, or Aharon and Moshe are your legs. Yitzhak and Abraham are your arms. And Israel's your heart. And you're your own head. So like you're, what? You know, so anyway... Just to point that out, uh, that is this week's Torah portion commentary from the Midrash and the Kabbalah. Many pieces, one sanctuary. Uh, one of the things that I loved is that uh, there was this uh, understanding of why are the vestments of the Mishkan considered to be holy? And it said they weren't holy because of what they were, but because of what they belonged to. And I just, I threw my phone away. I just, I mean, I still, I went to go get it, but I'm just saying we are not called holy because we ourselves are holy, but we're called holy because of what we belong to or who we belong to, I should say. So if you literally count yourself as being a part of the body of Mashiach, you're called holy. And as we read from Sephorno last week, because it threw all the way back to Shemot 19.6, Exodus 19.6, that you're a holy priesthood, royal nation, that kind of stuff. That it says, one who is called Kadosh, which is holy, by definition is immortal. So eternal life much, immortality much, taking off the perishable, putting on the imperishable, taking off the mortal, putting on the immortal. 1 Corinthians 15. Man, I need to do a Corinthian study. I thought about it, but then I started with Romans. <laughs> okay. All of that. So that's all in the commentary this week. Guess what else is in the commentary? It says everything that applies to the temple or the tabernacle also applies to us. So, yes, yeah, so that's that. Because remember, Shaul also told the Corinthians, did you not know that you were the tabernacle, I mean, the temple of God, you were bought with a price. Because did you know that we purchased the tabernacle? Why in the world did we give our shekels? Because that's our atonement. Remember Parshakitisa, we give the half shekel, every person. And it says to lift our heads. Literally, that's the redemption atonement money. And that made the foundation and the... Uh, I guess the icing on the cake is the better way to say it of the building of the Mishkan. So like the little rings and hooks and the little shiny things that you see on top of everything, that was the capping of the construction of the Mishkan was our half shekel, which is what we were bought with a price by. And the only reason we had a Mishkan is because in the absence of Moshe, we were like, we need something. Because we don't have our Redeemer with us. We need a, a golden calf. That'll be great. Yeah. All right. Cool. And Hashem is like, no, you need me. You need to understand that I am the invisible God 
who has an image, but you're not to fashion it and manifest it up on your own. Kind of like what people do when they say, oh, yeah, I know Yeshua said don't think that the Torah is abolished. But you know what? It's done away with anyway. So why why bother with learning the law of Moses? Well, it's the same thing as building a golden calf. And then Hashem was like, you know what? I know y'all want to build something. I know y'all want, you know, to manifest me, which is the redeemer in your presence. Because, you know, I'm Hashem, the one who redeems you. But, uh, you know, Moses did it, but it was really me. But he was my image, you know, because he was likened to a prince of Hashem. But anyway, same like Abraham. Selah on all that for a second. Um, but yeah, anyway, Hashem was like, you know what? So now that the calf has been destroyed and you guys have repented and you're seeking me, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you the commandment of building the Mishkan, which is literally all of you assembling yourselves to become one so that I can be manifest in you. Because, you know, Exodus 25, 8 literally says, let them make me a sanctuary, literally themselves, so that I may dwell among them, i.e. within them. We are the temple of the living God when we're unified together as one in the Mashiach. Why? Because Mashiach is the image of this invisible God that we talk about. Yep, that's Colossians chapter 1. So, again, all of this is just repetition. So when we're saying Brit Adashah, we're literally saying the renewal, the repurposing of everything. Bring this information back out. Retweet for the Twitter people out there. That's literally what the the Gospels, Acts, and all of the letters. It's literally like retweeting prophets and sages, Midrash, Kabbalah. Yep. Did you know people freak out about Kabbalah, but Yeshua said things like, I'm the bread that descended from Shemaim. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Tear down this temple. Those are all Kabbalistic drops, by the way. Everything that Paul wrote about Kabbalistic drops, by the way. Just saying. Um, yeah, so we should probably. Oh, one more, one last little swerve is that uh, in Parsha Vayakel, we learn about the 39 forbidden labors. Lots of information on this, but what I want to point out is that these things that people uh, halakhically get tripped up on, like, oh, don't carry, oh, don't, don't uh, be cutting and don't be writing on Shabbat and don't be harvesting on Shabbat and all this kind of stuff. Well, uh, you should be living in an Eruv and all that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? There's a lot more on this beneath the surface of these things because these all, which, by the way, you can find them in the Mishnah Shabbat 7-2. Mishnah Shabbat 7-2 is where you find these 39 labors. And when you get into looking at what these are, these are letting us know these are the things that you are to refrain from doing because these actions are necessary for building and constructing the tabernacle and the Mishkan. Because, yes, in Parsha Vayakel, we're taught do not do any constructive things 
on the day of Shabbat. Literally, leave the body of the image of Hashem wherever it is and keep the Shabbat. Don't do anything to the body. Just leave it. You ever wonder why? When Mashiach Yeshua was crucified and he gave up the, the spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh ascended from him just like it did from the tablets where the letters flew off the tablets. And it was just the corpse, just the, the tablets laying there. Did you know that his body was just wrapped in white linen, just like we do the Afikomen from Pesach, and hidden away? There was there was no like, oh, let's do the spices, let's clean them up and all this kind of stuff. No, just, just wrap it, tuck it aside, we'll get back to it. That's exactly what Hashem told us to do when it came time for constructing the Mishkan and it was time for Shabbat. Because when it was Shabbat, it was like, put all your work aside and you're just here. Because Shabbat literally is considered to be the completion of work, which is the day of rest. If we tell Hashem, I know you told us not to construct the, the Mishkan, but we're going to. I know you said leave the body alone and just tuck it away, but I'm going to go tend to it. You're basically saying, Hashem, what you showed us. Yeah, you're great and all. You're awesome. But I have I have no desire whatsoever to do that because I know we're supposed to be imitators of you, but we don't have to really imitate everything you did, which, by the way, Hashem. When he did something, he he was the one who did it first. And so for us to really be imitators of Hashem, we're literally copying something that he really taught us that we should do. Hashem told us we should visit the sick. But he was like, let me show you what that looks like. And he appears to Abraham after his circumcision, Parsha Bayera. Hashem says, you know. Love me with all your heart, your soul, your strength, which literally can mean lay down your life for me. And it's like, well, I did that at the Akira. See, you're going to lay down your life for me, but I literally laid down my life for you. So, you know, that's how it works. So really, if you're imitating me, you're just copying something I've already did. So when it comes to the Shabbat, Hashem was like, I command you to keep the Shabbat, but let me show you how to keep the Shabbat. I'm going to refrain from creating on this day and I'm going to do nothing but bless. But yet we as mankind have said, you know what? I know you rested and I know you focused on blessing, but, you know, I don't have to do that. I got games to go to. I got to go to work. You know, I got to do this thing. You know, I got to focus on this. And it's like, oh, so what I commanded you, what I desire for you to do is not good enough. OK, you don't you want the golden calf. All right. I get it. All right. I get it. Now, the thing is, is if if we've been on that path and we decide, you know what? I'm sorry, Hashem. I really want to be an imitator of you. The door is open for now. Because when the resurrection happens and it will, door will be closed or will be closing. Remember the parable of the, the virgins who were waiting with their lamps? And it's like, make sure you got enough oil, which is our obedience, our teshuva. Make sure you got enough, because when that door opens, if you're if your lamp is out and you got to go get more oil, it's it's too late. You will be left out. 
Hence why Yeshua said, go until I come back. Because when I come back, okay, we're moving on. We've had this opportunity, which all is a big teaching and an understanding of Parsha Shoftim about how before you go to wage war on a city, that you first go and preach shalom to it and give everyone an opportunity to enter into covenant with you, i.e. to come into the nation of Israel, because when we were leaving and going, leaving Egypt, going into the promised land, that the nations who were there, they knew they weren't supposed to be there because that was the land that was promised to Shem, which transferred to Abraham because the descendants of Shem, his own children, minus ever, obviously, were uh, forsaking the covenant. So that's where we were grafted in. Literally, the first grafting in was Abraham into the lineage of Shem. And now the land belongs to Abraham and his descendants. So therefore, the people of Canaan were like, no, nah, we ain't a part of Abraham, but we'll take his stuff. And Hashem was like, oh, no, no, you won't. However, I will give you an opportunity to join Abraham so that you can keep his stuff. But if you don't, then, you know, we're going to have to lay down some boundaries. Literally, you got to get removed because this is not where you're supposed to be. You know, this is not your space. Because while we're in Egypt, that's when Canaan just like, oh, they gone. Jews want to be in Egypt. They want to be in exile. We love it over here. This is great. What's happening in the world today? Who inhabits Israel today? And how much of Israel is really available to inhabit today? Not much. Not what we're supposed to have. And then even in what we're supposed to have is issues because we don't own all of that. So, again... We have this opportunity of shalom. Is our people going to convert? Are people going to come into covenant? Do does everyone know that the the opportunity is available for you to truly know God and walk with Him and be one with Him, be unified as one body? So that's what we have before us right now. So consume stuff, okay? Go out and let people know. That's what we live for. So when people see us doing certain things and not doing certain things that raises eyebrows. It's like, but you believe in the Messiah. You call him a different name. You follow the law. This is weird. It's nothing I've ever seen before. It's like, yeah, you want to know more? I mean, if you want to, I'm not, I'm not forcing you. I'm just saying you should. I mean, I mean, if you want to, anyway, that's how you preach alone. And the final thing I want to say is that, uh, with these 39 labors is that, this is just on teaching us that, you know, if you're engaging in these things, that make sure it's not in the fashion of building and constructing and doing creative work. Because I guarantee you, if you're um, making a sandwich on Shabbat, which is totally permissible, you will have to do some gathering. You will have to do some cutting and uh you know, you will be doing some tearing. So making a salad, same thing. So it's like, how come this cutting, gathering and tearing would be different from going outside, gathering sticks and breaking those sticks and making a fire? It's like, well, we're talking completely different stuff. And for those of us who are part of Sarshalom and Lapid, we do not get to live in an air roof. 
And even when we do, we're still going to have people who come and visit, you know, that live outside of that air roof. And it's like, okay, so in an air roof, what goes on? You know, there's people don't drive cars. They carry their stuff around with them everywhere. And it's totally permissible. But if you don't have an air roof, you're not allowed to carry. Not even so much as a pen or a pencil. So what are we doing? We're carrying our books to shul. We're carrying our crockpot stove and egg. Why are we doing that? And for what purpose? What end? You know, and could it be done differently at this point? Unless you plan on eating somebody else's food, <laughs> you know, you're probably going to be bringing your own food with you to shul. Which is totally fine. Because why? You're keeping the Shabbat. And as one of our fellow Avengers so beautifully stated, he said that Shabbat was made for man, not man made for the Shabbat. So Shabbat is a gift to us. And so we have to understand, yes, be responsible with that gift. But at the same time, don't let the gift like overrule you to the point that you're just out outrageous with stuff, you know. If your shoe comes untied on Shabbat, you should probably tie your shoe because if you don't, you're going to trip over your strings and you're probably going to hurt yourself. If you're sick on Shabbat and you have a headache or something like that, you take medicine. There literally is halakha that exists that says you're not allowed to take medicine on Shabbat unless you're really, really, really struggling. And it's like, so really, is that is that what we're reduced to? And again, Mashiach brought this down is it lawful to heal on the shabbat or you know do evil stuff you know like not heal on shabbat if a person has a withered arm and you have the ability to unwither his arm without doing much work or the kind of work that is one of these 39 labors for constructing the temple i mean why not yeshua spoke and said stretch forth your arm like what's wrong with that we're allowed to circumcise on Shabbat. But yet we can't heal a, a man with a withered arm or someone who's lame and can't walk. They won't be able to stand during the Amidah for crying out loud. So like, why is that not okay to give him the opportunity to stand during the Amidah? I mean, think about it. So anyway, just things to think about for this week's double tour portion. And without further ado, we will finally go to our Basora writings and go on from there. Baruch So our readings for this week actually is a double reading from the Basora, from the Gospel accounts. And how fitting since uh, we have two Torah portions. So we have Yochanan 13, 1 through 19, and we have Luke 16, 1 through 13. So I want to start with the Yochanan passage, because I like Yochanan. Yochanan's a pretty cool guy. And Dr. Luke is always my homeboy. I always call him Dr. Luke, my homeboy. Anyway, I look forward to meeting those gentlemen speedily and soon with the final redemption. Amen. Um, one of the things I want to go straight to in Yochanan chapter 13 is verse 8. I'm going to read to you from the Orthodox Jewish Bible and then bring in some commentary. Check this out. It says, Kepha says to him, you will never, ne oh, Slika, I'm already reading it wrong. Kepha says to him, never will you wash my feet, le olam. Rebbe Melech 
Hamashiach answered him, Unless I wash you, you do not have a chelek, allotted portion of inheritance with me. Devarim 12.12, Yeshiyahu 53.10, so Deuteronomy 12.12, Isaiah 53.10, Vayikra 5.15-16, literally Leviticus 5.15-16, are some beautiful drops about what the chelek is. But first thing up, I want to go straight to Yeshiyahu because, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Check this out. So Yeshiyahu 53, obviously, absolutely insane section of reading and get you some. But the Ibn Ezra brings down on verse 12 because this is all connected to it. And it says, surely I will give him the many as his portion, which is the word chalik. So if you have the regular English Bible versus a Tanakh or a Humash with the different or like the Humash that has like if you have the Humash of Yeshiyahu, like the uh, the art scroll, Yeshiyahu, Isaiah then there's different delineations of the verses because of the whole counting system and the way everything's divided up. So verse 10 and uh, the English Bible says, where am I at here? Go over here. Okay, Isaiah 53, 10 and your regular Bible says, yet it was with the Lord, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, or and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Come on, man. Talking about Mashiach, seriously. God's will to crush him, make him suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of God will prosper in his hand. Nothing about the word chalek is in that verse. So when you look at what it's saying, like go to the verse that talks about the chalek, it's going to be verse 12. You go down in your English Bible. Yep. And therefore I will give him a portion. But I want to point out that this verse, verse 10 here, it says that um, the father was pleased to crush him. This is going back to the Akedah that Abraham was pleased and excited to offer his son. So just like Abraham was excited to offer his son, Hashem was like, oh, you think you were excited to offer your son? Psh, watch what I'm about to do, you know, and that's literally the opportunity we have with Hashem. So if we think about serving Hashem with joy, like get you some. So anyway, back to Ibn Ezra, though, where he says that I will give him you know, the many as his portion it says, therefore I will divide him. It says all commentators agree that in this verse, the prophet speaks of those that die for the unity of God, literally the Shema, those who die for the sake of being obedient to Hashem and unifying his name. Like, you know, for the sake of the unification of the name of Hashem, the Yod and Hey with the Vav and Hey. Which when do we say those things? Before we do commandments. Anyway, 
did you know that when you do a mitzvah, you're bringing a unification to the name of God? I'm just saying, I'm just letting you know, I'm just asking. <laughs> like, the word commandment itself literally means connect. Connect what? The name of God. Anyway, so you die for the sake of the unity of God, explaining the expression, Berabim, which is with the great. Composite of Rav, which is chief, as in Esther 1.8. It says, to signify the prophets and understand by the strong, which is the patriarchs. According to this explanation, the meaning of the whole verse is the merit of those that die for the unity of God is equal to the merit of the prophets and the patriarchs. We know that this is true, but the subject has no connection with the context of this chapter. I will explain it as follows. I will certainly give to Israel a portion of the spoil and the booty taken from among, from many nations. So, Mashiach was already greater than Moses, greater than the forefathers, the patriarchs. Because, you know, who is this? Oh, great mountain before mountains of Rubable, a Midrash, Tankuma drop. Anyway, um, now it's like, well, if they die for the, the sake of unifying the name of Hashem, which obviously Mashiach did that, that uh, their merit is equal to that of the prophets and the patriarchs. So that's Ibn Ezra on this verse. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, going to the actual commentary from Art Scroll on this, here's what it says on that verse. It says, the translation follows the Targum because it says, I will assign him a portion. Some say divide, some say that will make him an inheritance. Literally, the word in Hebrew is achelek. When, when you put an olive in front of a word in Hebrew, like, you, uh, let's see, asaf. So, like, I gather, okay? Um, and then this word chelek, achelek, I will give a portion. I give inheritance. I inherit, basically. So the Targum translates it as, I will assign him a, a portion from the multitudes and he will divide the mighty as spoils. So that's interesting because Yechelek literally means he will divide. Achelek means I will assign, but they're same word, Chelek. So just a little Hebrew lesson right there. Depends on what precedes this verb is what's being done here. It says the multitudes refer to the mighty or the multitudes and the mighty refer to Gog and Magog and the nations who will attack, who will join to attack Jerusalem about whom the prophet says, Zechariah 14, 4. And the wealth of all the nations all around will be gathered gold, silver and garments in great abundance. The Talmud Sota 14a relates this verse homiletically to Moshe when he beseeched Hashem to be permitted to enter Eretz Israel so that he could perform the commandments of the land. 
God told him not to be concerned that he would lose the reward for performing those commandments. First of all, just think about the impact of this. Moshe's like, I want to be able to perform commandments. I don't want to lose out. Hashem's like, no, you ain't going to lose out, but you ain't going to get into the land to do those commandments to get that reward. I mean, just think about that for a second. You need to be able to do the commandments so you can get the reward for them, right? Well, when Hashem was talking to Moshe about it, he was like, well, actually, check this out. For I will assign him a portion among the multitudes entering the land. Unless you think that he would share only in the portion of the of those entering the land, the verse says, and he will divide the spoils with the mighty, referring to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So Moshe is going to inherit and he's also going to divide the spoils with Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Because guess what? The patriarchs never got to inherit the land, but yet they're going to get the reward and they're going to divide the spoils. So Moshe, guess what? You're now going to join the patriarchs. Going on to say, who were mighty in Torah and good deeds. Why did he earn this? In return for having poured out his soul for death, i.e. Moshe was willing to die for the sake of Israel, which, by the way, would be dying for the sake of unifying the name of God. Because why? Yisrael unifies the name of God. Going on, it says, because it is said in Shemot 32, 32, and now if you would but forgive their sin, but if not, erase me now from your book, literally erase me from life, because our life is the book. And so erase me from your book that you have written. So like to be wiped out of eternal life, basically. And did not Shaul say I would rather give up my life for the sake of my brothers to come into this knowledge and understanding of the Mashiach? He said that to the Romans. He was willing to give up his Olam Haba for the sake of his brothers inheriting. Moshe did the same thing right here in Exodus 32. Again, just repeating things. This, this is not new. That was not new that Shaul said that. It says our verse continues and being counted among the wicked for Moshe died in the wilderness like the sinners of his time. Show enough pink is brought down last week on Parshakitisa that Moshe was considered to do an act of idolatry when he shattered the tablets because he shattered the tablets, he broke the tablets in anger. And anytime you do something in anger, it's considered avodazera, which is idolatry. So Moshe, he who knew no sin because he didn't make the golden calf, became sin because he broke the tablets, all for the sake of bringing us into reconciliation with God. So... Mashiach was willing to be counted among the transgressors, be crucified in the middle of two people who were absolutely horrible uh, acts of crime that they committed. And Mashiach's like, yeah, put me in the middle of that. I'll take that. So Moshe, same thing. 
He died in the wilderness with the sinners of his times. Like Moshe died in the desert with those who said, Oh God, you brought us out here to die where there are not enough graves in Egypt. Oh God, we have to stay in the wilderness because there's giants in the lands and you cannot defeat them. Stuff like that. Moshe died in the wilderness with those people. And guess what it goes on to say in this commentary? For he bore the sins of the multitudes, i.e. he atoned for those who made the golden calf and prayed for the wicked that they repent. Did not the Mashiach say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. See, yeah, there's that. Also, it goes on to say the sages relate this verse to Rabbi Akiva. Yerushalayimi Shekelim 5.1 or to those in any generation who give up their lives to sanctify God's name. Bamibar Rabbah 13.3 Rashi explains the first half of this verse in accordance with the above cited explanation from Sota without applying it to Moshe. So it's like, okay, we're going to apply this to Moshe. Rashi comes along. No, we're not going to apply it to Moshe. <laughs> I'm going to finish this thought and then I want to say something. It says, since according to Rashi, this section refers to the righteous of Israel. See 5213. So Yeshua, Isaiah 5213 says, apparently this verse does as well. This is further borne out by Ibn Ezra, who says that all the commentaries explain this verse as a parable, referring to those who die in the sanctification of the name, whose portion will be with the patriarchs. He continues, however, that although that is unquestionably true, the simple meaning of the verse is as we have explained above. And return for having poured out his soul for death literally says because Israel forfeits its life in the lands of its dispersion, it deserves this great reward. That's a Radak and a Barbanel. The rest of this commentary is ridiculous. Okay. The righteous suffered as if they themselves were wicked, for they bore the sin of their multitudes. Israel suffered for the physical sins committed against them by their neighbors who counted them among the wicked who deserve punishment. Israel in exile prayed for the welfare of the host nations, despite the physical sufferings they underwent at their hands. Yermiyahu 29.7 counseled the Jewish exiles, you shall seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you and entreat God on its behalf. Why are we praying for America right now during the pandemic? Well, there you go. It says alternatively, the suffering of the righteous itself serves as an intercession before God on behalf of the world. Literally, the righteous suffering on behalf of the world, that's a thing. <laughs> and it says, in effect, bearing these sins of the multitudes. Okay, so what I want to say is that, again, that was Art Scroll, Milstein Edition, Yeshiyahu 5312. 
which ties to Yochanan 13.8. When you look at commentaries, especially the Talmud, Rabbi so-and-so in the name of Rabbi so-and-so says this. Well, Rabbi so-and-so, son of so-and-so, in the name of so-and-so said this. Then somebody else comes in and says something else. Obviously, all the witnesses are on the court. If everybody had two to three witnesses, and they did, you're looking at at least six to nine or more witnesses on all of these drops that are going on. But everybody has a different opinion and a different perspective and a different insight. And what usually happens with the Gemara on all of these drops is a synthesis of all of the insights. One says you should have a sukkah with four walls, with three walls, with two and a half walls. And it's like, okay, build your sukkah. Your, your, either way it goes, you're going to build this sukkah. <laughs> so you do what you want to do with your walls, but you're going to at least have two and a half walls. Or you can have three, you know, however you want to do it. Anyway, I bring this up because we will find ourselves in Torah discussions with one another. And it's like, I don't agree with that. I actually say this. Well, the thing is, we have to be very careful, first of all, because we will fall into the pattern of our commentary from our sages. If we do it for the sake of Shemaim, if we're disagreeing on insights, not from selfish desire, not because so-and-so is wrong and I'm right and that's it. That's where the problem is going to be. But if you're like, well, this source actually says this. Well, this source actually says this. Both are right. I was literally personal experience, less than 24 hours. I was talking about the story of uh, Asaph selling his birthright to Yaakov. And what happened in the lead up to that was that Yaakov was cooking the pot of red lentils because it was the death of Abraham and he was doing a, a Shiva meal, a meal of mourning for that. And another Havendra told me, well, actually, commentary is brought down that it was actually the death of Shem. And so Shem, who is one who died after Abraham, by the way, Shem lived for like another 30 or something years after Abraham. But, uh, yeah, so I was just like, say what? I didn't get upset. I didn't say, no, nah, you're wrong. He had a source. I'm like, okay. And as I read last week in my Parsha, I don't know, it was one of the ones about the tent of Moses and the garments of splendor, that podcast, I did like 18 podcasts last week, it felt like. And in there, Everybody was bringing down about the three ascensions of Moshe up the mountain. You know, 40 days to go up and get the tablets, came back, golden calf, what y'all doing? Breaks the tablets, 40 days back up to ask for forgiveness, comes back, gets the new set of tablets, goes back up, 40 days, come back down, you know, all that. Well, the different commentators were like, no, it was only two trips. No, it was just, it was, it was uh, three. And one was like, well, no, actually, he didn't go into Shemayim on the second one. He actually just went into the tent for 40 days. And I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> you know, and so it's just kind of like, well, the rest of the story to that is 
Shemaim came down into the tent of Moshe. So when Moshe went into his tent, according to that particular commentary for 40 days, he still went into Shemaim for 40 days, whether it was on top of the mountain or in his tent. It literally was like one in the same. So that's the beauty of taking all of these commentaries and taking the back and forth insights. You synthesize them. And if you feel like someone is wrong, then make sure it's based off of uh, getting the right information from the source versus that this is just what I made up and this is just what it is. And I don't want to hear it. So just a little uh, note on that. OK, so let's read Yochanan 13. That's all the commentary I want to share from this one. Here we go. Now, before the Chag, the feast of Pesach, Rebbe Melech Hamashiach, having da'at, having awareness that the Sha'ah had come, the hour, his Sha'ah, when he would pass from the Olam Hazay to the Ha'av, to the Father, Mashiach knew it was his time to die. Vayakel is also the same word that's used for Yaakov gathering his sons around him because he knew he was about to die. Yes, Genesis chapter 49. Yeshua, same thing here. He knew it was his hour to come. And uh, what does he say here? Yochanan chapter 13 says, Having had... Ahava for his own in the Alamaze, love for his own in this world. He had Ahava for them to Hakates to the end. He had love for them to the end. And it says, while the Seder meal was happening, Hasatan had already put in the heart of Yehuda from Creot, Judas Iscariot. And literally it says Yehuda ben Shimon. So the father of Yehuda was Shimon from Creot. It says that um, that he should be handed over, that he should hand over Yeshua. Okay. So the meal is going on. Yeshua's like, all right, this is the gathering time. Everybody's around me. We're having this meal, having this last meal. And okay, so Yehuda is about to get ready to betray me, just like Yehuda was one like, we should sell Yosef. Yehuda's already like, oh, we should sell Yeshua. Okay, so we've seen that before. Verse three says, And Rebbe Melech HaMashiach, having had da'at, having had knowledge, awareness, that the Father had given into his hands all things, and that from Rebbe Melech HaMashiach came forth, and to Hashem he is going. So it's like, I came from the Father, now I'm getting ready to go back. He rises from the Seuda. He rises from the meal. He put aside his kaftan, you know, his kind of overgarment covering. And having girded himself with a towel, he puts Mayim into the basin. He literally becomes the shiny laver. And he began to wash the raglei hatamidim, the feet of the tamidim, and to wipe them with the towel with which he had been girded. The shiny labor. One of the things I got to read it says, unless uh, 
four koanim could be around this laver at one time, washing their hands and feet. It's not uh, built to halakhic spec. So the laver needs to be able to water and wash four koanim at one time. I was just kind of like, that's ridiculous, because when do we see four entities surrounding one entity? Oh, yeah, the throne of God were the four living creatures. Okay, because the Kohanim are likened to angels of Hashem. Okay, <laughs> the four angels surrounding God's throne. Uh, you know, Mikael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, mm, the four camps surrounding Hashem's throne, which was the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Shiny labor, the the place of the living water. Okay. Anyway, because you know that the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God, was inside the Mishkan. And what was in the courtyard of the Mishkan was the rock that traveled with us in the wilderness. And yes, that rock is Mashiach. So literally, were we surrounding Mashiach or were we surrounding Hashem? The answer is yes. The very place that is the source of our cleansing and purification, that's what we surrounded as the four angels surrounded. Because each camp division was headed by these four archangels. So, yeah, there's all that. So, anyway, um, all this is going on. You sure knew the end to come. So, that's a Vayakel connection right there for everybody. It says in verse six, Rebbe Melech HaMashiach comes to Shimeon, Kepha. Kepha says to Rebbe Melech HaMashiach, Adonai, you wash my feet? By the way, Abraham was the one who washed the feet of Hashem and the visitors uh, in Parsha Bayera when he tended to them. And here's Hashem repaying back that episode by washing the feet of the Talmudim. So it says in verse 7, In reply, Rebbe Melech Hamashiach says to him, Of what I am doing, you have no da'at now. But you will receive bina after these things. Or Hakim brings down that the whole thing about washing the feet is washing with the Peshat level of Torah. Now, the thing is, is Mashiach is getting us ready for the Torah as it was before it rearranged itself into its current form, because we now are people who get sick and die and stuff and go through all sorts of impurity and purity and all that. Well, before that, the Torah didn't have any of that information in it because we, first of all, didn't need it. And second of all, we got the Torah like directly from Hashem, like he was walking with us in the cool of the day. We were one with the Shekinah of Hashem and all that. But Mashiach is bringing us back to that level. And the Peshat level of that Torah is literally the greatest among you as a servant. So like the white fire of our current Torah, the, the blank spaces that we see in the Torah scroll, the Peshat level of that means to wash the feet. So that's Or HaKhaim saying washing the feet is related to Peshat level of teaching of Torah. So anyway, you can understand how the Torah Messiah is very, very turned up. So much so that in order for us to study it, we have to be resurrected first in order to learn it. Hence why we are crucified with Mashiach. No longer we live, but he lives in us. 
and our mindset is now as a new creation focused on the things of the spirits and the things of life, the resurrection and the life. You know, we got to be buried with him, raised with him, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Hopefully you connect all those dots and you'll see. We're beginning to get into the Torah of Mashiach, which is understanding that the greatest among you is a servant. Mashiach was doing that. We are a shiny labor, or we should be, to one another. Cleaning and purifying one another, reflecting the true image of true uh, love and service of Hashem. Going on in verse 8, it says, Kepha says to him, Never will you wash my feet, Le'olam. Never will you wash my feet at all, forever. <laughs> That's pretty intense. Because it's like, oh, you don't want no Peshat? Okay, it's going to be a problem for accepting the Torah in the time to come. Because it says, Rebbe Melech HaMashiach answered him, unless I wash you, you do not have a chelek, an allotted portion with me. Shimeon Kepha says to Rebbe Melech HaMashiach, Adonai, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Get everything. <laughs> Rebbe Melech HaMashiach says to him, the one having been bathed, if you've been immersed already, Kepha, which you have been, uh, you do not need to, you do not need except your feet to be washed, but you're wholly clean and you are clean. Okay, though not at all. It's an interesting way to translate that, but he's saying you're completely clean. And you are all clean, though not everyone. Because why? He just got the download. Okay. What? The person who was going to betray me? Okay, that's now official. Like, it, it's now something I knew that was potentially going to happen. Yehuda could have made Teshuva and, like, you know, took care of that, but he didn't. So now it's official. Transaction set. It's about to go down. Everybody else is clean, but this one. So that's that. And it says, For Rebbe Melech HaMashiach had the ot of the one betraying him. Therefore, he said, Not all of you are tehorim. Not all of you are clean. You know, when you're immersed in the mikvah and you have no intention of change, you're considered to be as if you have not been cleaned purified, immersed. This is the status of Yehuda at this point. He's going to betray the Mashiach, but yet he's been immersed in Mashiach. So therefore, it's as if he hasn't been immersed in Mashiach. So therefore, he is not clean. And I am supposed to be reading 1 through 13. So we are almost there. Not bad. Oh, verse 19. Sika. It says that, uh, therefore, when he washed their feet and resuited himself into his kaftan, Rebbe Melech HaMashiach reclined at Tish, which is a Yiddish word for the dinner that they're having. And it says, and said to, to them, do you have the ought of what I've done for you? Do you have knowledge and understanding of what I've done to you? You call me Rabbeinu and Adonainu. 
So not only do you call me rabbi, like what we call Moshe, but you also call me Adonai, which is what we call Hashem. And you say will for Ani who? Yeshua's like, that's good. You can call me that because that's that's really who I am. I am he. I am he who is your rabbi and your Lord. And it goes on to say, if therefore I being Rebbe and Adon washed your feet, you ought to wash the feet of one another also. So you to help other people be servants and be uh, available to enter into the Torah of Mashiach. You need to help people just like I've helped you. You need to lower yourself for other people just like I lowered myself for you. Verse 15, for I gave you as a example which is the word mofet. And here I've given you an example uh, in other regular translations, but I've given you a mofet that as I did to you, you may also do. So remember again, we imitate Hashem, but yet we're really just copying Hashem because what he told us to do, he already did. So Yeshua was like, I want you to wash everyone's feet, but guess what? I'm telling you this because I've already washed your feet. So you should go do the same. And it says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, an Evid, a servant, is not greater than his Adon, nor is a Shliach, one who is sent, greater than his Meshaleach, his sender. If you have the odds of these things, happy are you if you put them into practice. So you can know all these things, but you're only going to be like fulfilled when you put them into practice, which is another thing. But we're not going to get into that because everybody wants to have beliefs without doing. And it's just like, that's a problem. I do not speak about all of you. I have the art of whom I choose, but it is to fulfill the Kitve HaKodesh, which literally means the Holy Scripture. What Holy Scripture? Tehillim 41 nine or verse 10, depending on what translation you have, whether it's a Tanakh or a regular Bible, English Bible, that is, says the one eating my bread, he lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I tell you before the occurrence that you have that you may have a Muna when it occurs that I am he, Anihu. So we'll end with this uh, Tehillim here and then uh, Bezrat Hashem pick up with the Luke passage. It says here in this verse, uh, it's verse 10 if you have the art scroll, it says, even my ally, literally man of man of my Shalom, in whom I trusted. Was not Yehuda a man of Shalom and who Mashiach trusted? He's like, I bring you into my covenant of peace. And it's just like, <laughs> thanks. I'm going to turn my back on you. Okay. Anyway, it says the invalid laments that in his hour of distress, not only do his enemies attack him, but even his trusted friends betray him. Radak. Mashiach at this point is be entering into the distress of you know, the, the sheep are going to scatter. Everyone's going to leave me. I'm going to be alone, but, I, you know, I'm not alone because my father's with me. 
but I'm going to get to see this all play out the, the betrayals and, you know, I trusted you and you turned your back on me. You sold me out, you know, the, the darkness of the heart of man that can be manifest. It's like, this is now going down. It's like, what? You're the one who's supposed to be like my right hand man. And you're like, no, Yehuda was in charge of the money bag. And it's like he took that money bag and used it to sell Yeshua. I mean, think about that. It's like you got us on the budget, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, You know, you can trust me. I got you. It's like, yeah, to sell you. It's just like, wow, dude, it's terrible. Anyway, that's from Radak. And it says, who ate my bread? It says, even more painful is the ingratitude of the person whom I've lavished so much kindness upon whom I've lavished so much kindness. So it's like, how much kindness did Mashiach do for Yehuda of Creote? How much kindness does he do for us on a daily basis? And yet we forsake him, turn our back on him. We sell him out and we say things like, Oh yeah, we don't want to do your law, God, but you know, thank you for saving me. And it says, now he bites the hand that fed him. It says he raised his heel to trample me. Our translation follows Radak. According to Ibn Ezra, David bemoans the fact that his friends did not visit him in his sickness. When Mashiach was beaten and whipped, his Talmudim were scattered. The people who were always with him were not with him anymore. Think about that. It's like being sick and having no visitors. It says, rather, they raised their heels over him in a manner of proud aloofness. So, yeah, that's not not good. Hence why we need to be people of like Shuva, like seriously. So. The more Shuva, the better. You know, when we can just admit, okay, I betrayed you. I'm no better than Judas. I'm no better than Kepha who denied you. I'm no better than, you know, the people who made the golden calf. Like when you can get to that level, you know, when we can all get to that level, then we're going to start seeing the the Pakude. That's where Pakude comes in, where we take the stock and the accounting. Like we see all the individual pieces that make up the whole collective thing that has been by to make that into a verb. Like, that's where it really is, you know, all the summation of the parts. The Midrash brings down that Hashem highlighted where every piece of the donation went to. The people were like, we gave half shekels. Where are they at? Hashem highlighted on the Mishkan where the half shekel was. Nothing went to waste. And Hashem was like, you want to see where your stuff went? Here you go. To make matters even more crazier, one of my other commentaries I read, whether it was the Bekol Ram or uh, the the Torah Suites, forget which one, but one of them was saying that when people act like that, that's because they're really stingy and they're not generous. So these are the people with the darkened eyes that you sure talk about. Make sure the light that you have isn't dark. Don't have an evil eye, that kind of stuff. Well, they're the, the, the money, the misers. They're like, yeah, so we didn't want to give to you in the first place. But since we gave to you, where is the where did it go to? And it's like Hashem was like, here, I'll show you exactly where everything went to. So anyway, 
just to shine some light on the situation. Yochanan 16, 1 through 13. It says, And Rebbe, Hama, Hamashi, Rebbe Melech Hamashiach was also saying to the Talmudim, a certain rich man. This is the parable of the shrewd steward, which is uh, Sokhen, a steward and a state manager or agent. A certain osher, like he was rich, loaded. Shokin. He had a shokin. So that rich guy had this, this guy, right? Handling stuff like Judas. Mashiach, super rich. He has a shokin or a sokin, slika, sokin, which is just like Judas. And it says, and the charge brought against him was that he was squandering the property of the rich man. Did not Slika Yehuda squander the property of Mashiach. He took the silver pieces that should literally be used for the building of the temple and use it for the destruction of the temple. Because remember, Mashiach Yeshua is Adam El Yon. Adam Kadmon, which is the image of the temple. Okay. And it says, so yeah, so he used that to tear it down. It says, and having called him the Osher, the rich man, said to the Sokhan, what is this I hear about you? Submit to a Bekorit Besh Bonot. Submit to an audit. So let's do a Pekude real quick. That's exactly what the, the Pakude is all about. Let's do an audit, shall we? You want to know where everything went that you donated? Because some of you said you gave with a generous heart, but you didn't really. So, you know, for those of you who had issues with giving, let's talk about it. So he had an audit. It says, for that which is under your Pekudat. Oh, here we go. Using the word for Pakude right here. Luke 16, verse 2, uses the same word as pakude. Using the stewardship and the care, for you are no longer able to be a soken. It says, and the soken said to himself, well, what may I do? Because Adonai takes away the pakudat from me. All right, what may I do? Because Adonai takes away the pakudat from me. I am not strong enough to dig I am ashamed to beg. This is where uh, foresight would have been like a thing. Should probably have thought about this before. And it says, oh, I have the art of what I may do. I know what I should do. That when I am removed from the work of the soaking, because I'm about to get fired, they may receive me into their batim. They may receive me into their homes, like their bait, bait, plural, team. And having summoned his Adon's debtors one by one. So it's like, okay, I know some people who owe my master who just fired me. Let me go to them. He was saying to the first, how much do you owe Adoni, my master? And he said, oh, him uh, 100 jugs of olive oil. Side note, what in the world were you doing with 100 jugs of olive oil? Anyway, and the Sokin said to him, take your bill. Sit down quickly, write 50. Let's cut it in half. All right, cut your debt in half. All right, cool. Half shekel style. You really should pay a shekel, but let's go ahead and half that thing. All right, cool. Then to a, the written bill of debt torn up much right here. 
It says, and he said, okay, the, the 100 jugs of wool, da, 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 write down 50. Verse 7. Then to another, he said, and you, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 containers of wheat. He says to him, take your bill, write down 80. Okay, I know you owe a lot of wheat. I can't really take off half, but we'll take off a little bit. So now you owe 80 instead of 100. Okay, cool. And the Baal, the Baal Bayit, the master of the house, praised the crooked manager, which, by the way, is using the word unrighteous. He praised this unrighteousness because he acted with chokmah. He acted with wisdom. Because the B'nai Ha'olam Hazeh have more sechel, so the children of this world, literally saying this unrighteous steward here, is acting like a child of the world, like a son of perdition, son who is under the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians type 2 stuff, says they have more sechel, more skill, more application in dealing with their own generation than the B'nai Ha'or. They deal better with worldly stuff than they do with the children of the light. And I say to you, use the mamon, use the wealth of the Olam Hazeh to make yourselves friends. So that when unrighteous mamon fails, when this unrighteous gain happens, they may welcome you into the Mishkanot Olam, into eternal dwellings of the Alam Haba. So when you look at that, to say that in a different way, to help with a little bit more clarity, I say to you, make friends for yourselves from the wealth of the world. So when it runs out, they will welcome you into eternal shelters. So just kind of looking at this real quick, that, Making friends for yourself in this world by using the wealth of this world so that when your money runs out, you still have a support system. But also that if you forsake the Olam Haba for the sake of this world, then you're going to dwell in the dwellings of this world in the Olam Haba which means it won't exist. This is exactly why you should, well, not exactly, but this is one of the reasons why if you see what Yeshua says next is so important. Because he says, one who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. One who is unrighteous in little is also unrighteous in much. If then... You are not faithful with unrighteous gain. Who will entrust you with honest gain? True wealth. So if Judas couldn't take care of the money bag that was entrusted to him now, how is he going to take care of the, the future reward that's going to come after the resurrection? You know, the treasure that's stored up where bots and ruts can't get to it can't take care of this the wealth of this world how are you going to take care of the wealth of you know the rewards of your mitzvot in the world to come the mitzvot are the currency that we will be spending in the world to come so if you're not doing mitzvot now you don't have any money in your bank account in shemaim so just 
Selah. But if you can't use worldly wealth appropriately, then how are you going to use the the wealth of your mitzvot appropriately in the Olam Haba, basically? So going on, it says, and if you were not faithful, which that with that which belongs to another, which, by the way, you know, we don't belong to ourselves. So if we're not faithful with our own bodies because they belong to somebody else, who will give you what is your own? Wow. And then it says, no Evid is able to serve two Adonim. No servant is able to serve two masters. For either you will have Sina, hatred, towards the one, and he will have Ahava, love, towards the other. Or one will one he will be devoted to and the other he will despise. Say despise. Because again, in Romans chapter eight, it says this verse. Those who live according to the flesh, verse five, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live in accordance with the Ruach, the spirit, the Torah, set their minds on the things of the Ruach. For the mindset of the flesh is death the mindset of the Ruach is life. The mindset of the flesh is hostile, i.e. we despise God, for it does not submit itself to the law of God, for it cannot. So let me ask you this. You either can serve Hashem or you can serve materiality. But if you serve materiality, you're going to hate Hashem and you're going to spurn the Torah. But if you serve Hashem, you're going to spurn materiality, but you'll be able to use it in the way that it's supposed to be used because Hashem teaches you how to use materiality without letting it master you. But if you do it the other way around, materiality is going to teach you to hate Hashem and not master you while it masters you and ultimately leaves you without an eternal habitation because that habitation that you will inhabit will not exist because the things of this world will all perish and go away. But the things of life, the things of Torah, the things of the law will never pass away. So to finish off the last part of this verse, it says your avodat service cannot be for both Hashem and Mammon. End of our Basora reading for this week. So to wrap everything up that we've talked about for the past several hours, <laughs> when you get into the understanding of what we're heading into, we're completing the book of Shemot and we're heading into uh, the book of Vayikra. We're literally at the threshold of a redemption mindset. And with the things that are currently happening in current events, Mashiach, is so close if we want him. Hashem is giving us every opportunity to cry out for him. And I I would just really encourage us all to do so, to really assemble into the body of Adam Kadmon, to manifest the image of the temple in this world, to live as people who are renewed constantly, like the moon, like the months, like the years like the festivals, like the word of Hashem, like our prayers every single day, renewed. So may it be so that we see the Mashiach soon in our days. May we yearn for him. May we strive for him. And may we manifest him in this world as we unify with one another 
to bring about an eternal dwelling and habitation of Hashem in this world. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vechaye olam natabetokeinu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-Torah. Chazak, chazak, venit hazek. May you be strong, be encouraged, and be strengthened.